a woman who's, who's never done a dishonest thing in her life finds herself falling into a love affair with a musician. It's a little vague, Alice. Who's the woman? Who's the man? Who's the poor husband? What makes it interesting? Is it lurid? Is it sexual? Perverse? Are you wearing the underwear I bought you? Where does it go? What is this? Where am I going? Later, I'm your host Rick Camilleri with my co-host Chris Chafin, and today we are honored, excited, delighted to be uh, joined by writer-director Daniel Schechter, who is uh, the director of After Class, Life of Crime, Supporting Characters, Goodbye Baby, and writer of those films as well. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Say hello. Oh, thanks for having me, long-time listener, first-time <laughs> guest. <laughs> by long time, you mean four or five months. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, four or five episodes, probably. Five episodes. Yeah. I think I made it yeah, all the way through. Ricky, I don't um, know why you're like trying to dig underneath this compliment. Like, just fucking take it. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't, I can't take compliments very well. I have, to, I, I have to criticize them and ruin them. Just burn them to the ground. Um, today we're talking, at, at Dan's request, um, a 1990 film by uh, writer-director, maybe you've heard of him, Mr. Woody Allen. Uh, a lesser known of his films, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, Alice, starring Mia Farrow, William Hurt, Joe Mantegna. Um, who, I mean, who else is in this cast is stock full. Alec Baldwin. Um, Bob Balaban. Bob Balaban. Bernadette Peters. Uh, Bernadette, Bernadette Peters, Peters, New York, yeah. uh, New York favorite, James Toback. Uh, <laughs> Judy Davis, yeah, James Judy. Toback, that's funny. <laughs> Judy and you Davis, know, Ricky, right. I feel like I feel like New York is a character in the movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, isn't that just kind of the case with all all of Woody Allen's movies? I think you know. Do we should yes. really dig into that? Yes. I don't think anyone's ever really talked about that before. Um, it's really <laughs> interesting, you know. It's just the city that he loves, you know. There is an insanely gratuitous shot in the movie where. They just have this unbelievable view of Times Square, and they're on a date on the roof, and it doesn't forward the story in any way, but it's just magnificent to look at Times Square <laughs> in 1990, and it's shamelessly because I think he loves New York so much that he just put that in there, and I don't care. I'm fine with it. Oh, yeah. No, there I, are some great views. There's a moment where Joe Montaigne, like, they go back to his apartment. And, oh, like, my he's, God, that I mean, apartment. this is something I want to talk about in general, the way that <laughs> Joe Montaigne is supposed to be poor, I guess, but, like, also seems to be very rich and successful. But his apartment has this, like, one entire, it's like a loft towards the top of a building, I guess. The entire wall is glass. It's raining. You can see the city outside. It's so beautiful and romantic. There's a shot okay. of of, of uh, her of, of Mia Farrow and Joe Mantegna when she and we'll get to the 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 real the juice of that scene Why? in a in a in a minute where when she's first hitting on him in the um in the classroom or like in the hallway of their their children's school they're sitting in front of this uh and it's like kind of like a flat shot because they're just sitting in front of this wall but on the wall there's a little cardboard cutout right in between them of the New York City skyline. 
And it's this really like kind of sweet interpretation of like what a, a magical Woody Allen shot normally is, but like stripped <laughs> down into this like children's classroom, right? It looks like the Manhattan skyline uh, when they're sitting on the bridge, but instead it's just like this little children's cutout of it in between the two of them. So I really love that moment. So I was I was ambivalent about choosing this movie because Ricky, you were nice. You're like, hey, if you want to come on the podcast, pick something. And I know myself well enough that, like, even the podcasts I love, I want to listen to the biggest movies or the most famous guests, and I might skip over things that I hadn't heard of. You know what I mean? And maybe Alice is a skipper for people who might be (laughs) casual fans of 30 years later. But I also love turning people on to to deep cut Woody Allen. Where do you guys stand on Woody Allen just before we dig into it? Like, well, I just want to say like, yes, yes, this is a lesser, an esoteric, a lesser known Woody Allen movie. But if we do want to get people to listen to it, I think we just frame this conversation with like, you're for Woody Allen. I'm against, and let, we'll just argue that point for two hours yeah. and then we'll post it <laughs> yeah. online as like, you know, famous filmmaker Daniel Schechter comes out in support of Woody Allen. Listen now. <laughs> so I want to get into all that stuff and I do and I will, but I'm very curious what your relationship was with him growing up and watching movies because I kind of now have a sense of like your guys' relationship with movies and how you feel about him now. I'm just kind of curious where both of you are on um, just Woody and his work and all that. I'll, I'll 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 go first here. I loved Woody Allen's movies growing up. I still like. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I caught Purple Rose of Cairo on TCM, and I I hadn't seen it in a while, and it was one hundred percent like one of the most delightful viewing experiences yeah. I think I've had this year. It's a perfect movie, um, and so there are I I can look past whatever I think about the man personally for some of his better movies because those better movies are just so good, um, but. Sometimes when it comes to the better personal movies, I have a little bit of a hard time with those. Like Husbands and Wives, I have a little bit of a hard time watching. Manhattan, I have a hard time watching. Uh, Deconstructing Harry, I have a hard time watching, but I kind of love it because it's so provocative and mean-spirited that there's something that feels like a... It really feels like a burn-it-all-down kind of movie, which is um, just uh, too too tempting to not embrace. Um... And I, you know, there's rumors that that movie was based actually more on Philip Roth than him. And Woody Allen was very friendly with, with uh, Philip Roth's wife, who he had worked with several times. And it makes a lot of sense when you hear that. Yeah, that 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 also sounds about right. It's kind of like either right. or. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do find like even with this, as much as this is one of his more whimsical Movies that honestly feels more in line with, I think, the later work of Woody Allen in 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 its use of whimsy, yet at the same time rooted in the reality that the earlier work was much better at than a lot of the later work was. Um, Agreed. There well, I think this movie's coming in this weird kind of transitional moment for him where it's like you're coming out of uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is one of my favorite, if one of my very, very top films of his. And then, but you're also moving into like, um, the Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Like it's kind of bridging yes. those two things where it's like, it's an in, it's a movie about the interior lives of Manhattan's rich and famous with some hokey 1930s style magic in it. So it's like, comes right in the middle of this stuff. It also feels yeah, like because... it's about, sorry, I, I, real fast. I think it also feels like it's about Mia Farrow um, in a way that some oh, yeah. of the other characters that she portrayed for him weren't necessarily, or at the very least it was, 
I mean, and this is one thing that I think, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but Chris and I were talking about this before, which is that like, it is the end her her trajectory at the end of the movie where she becomes this woman who starts adopting children basically or at the very least going to calcutta and working with impoverished uh sick children which is something that mia farrow really did in her life becomes kind of strange at this particular point in woody allen's life because he's about to marry his adopted daughter that mia farrow adopted and that's like a weird moment at the end where it's like if you were to remove that personal history it's a beautiful ending that i rare that i really relate to (laughs) but even beyond that it's just like um you know they get a divorce and she becomes somebody who's like devoted to her kids and spends all her time with her kids and that is like literally what's about to happen between woody allen and mia farrow and with her kids like with you know ronan and the sister like yeah, this and this is supposedly like Woody Allen starts seeing Cindy like a year after this movie comes out. Uh, so it's like it, it is pretty on the nose and supposedly it was a really difficult shoot. And uh, Woody Allen like went into the hospital afterwards with exhaustion, which usually means drug addiction when celebrities have that. But in this case, I really have no idea. It could have literally been exhaustion or just was tired of fighting with Mia Farrow on set all day. <laughs> was... Well, Chris, it's exhausting to try to make a movie and date your daughter at the same time. You should know that. <laughs> to really fix it out of you. Um, but I mean, to answer your question, Dan, about my like relationship with Woody Allen, I mean, yeah, like Ricky said, I mean, look, if you're somebody that likes movies and you grew up in the time that we grew up, I mean, Woody Allen was like the filmmaker. He was like the example of a, of a filmmaker who was still working, you know? I mean, it was great. I love all his movies. I mean, I've seen almost all of them, not all of them. You know, as a kid, I used to love, you know, some of the sillier ones. And then maybe when I was in high school, I was a big fan of like Love and Death. Like that was really one of my Mm -hmm. favorite movies. I used to watch Love and Death all the time. Then I got into like Crimes and Misdemeanors later on, some of his kind of like Bergman aping movies. A lot of the movies that were coming out when I was around, like in the 90s, right? Like Curse of the Jade Scorpion. I mean, I saw that in the movie theater with my parents, but I was like... (laughs) this is fine. Like I was not crazy about it, but I love going back and watching his older movies. And, you know, how do you, how do I feel about Woody Allen now? I mean, right. It's a question I, you know, it's kind of hard to answer. Right. I mean, obviously he's done some very bad things, but I can't, I don't think that means you can pretend that some of his movies aren't absolute classics of modern cinema. Right. I mean, they still are. He's a very, very talented filmmaker. I mean, he's a talented clarinet player. You know what I mean? And the fact that he has done some things that people don't approve of, or that maybe are gross and bad it doesn't make that not true you know what i mean and yeah, fair, I mean, is it fair to say allegedly done or am i <laughs> am i am i te- dipping my toes in in, in, well, I in think waters just the sunni stuff like at least if you're even just talking about that stuff like that's all gross and weird and and bad to a certain degree right um the other stuff like the ronan pharaoh stuff like i i don't know i don't know about that you know i I, listen, I have this conversation a lot, and it's super uncomfortable, but I, I'll just be totally honest with how I feel about it. I have read, because the Sunni, you have to separate these two Dylan Farrell things, right. Sunni Previn things. I think it's really important. Uh, I've read everything <laughs> you could possibly read about this Dylan Farrell case, and I think most people haven't read anything, and you would be shocked to the extent of its implausibility. And I don't mean to say, like, I don't believe, I do not believe it is possible that he could have molested Dylan Farrow. And I know that sounds like such a bold thing to say, but it is not at all if you've read anything about this, if you've read any of the court transcripts, the psychology reports, the siblings and what they've had to say who were older at that time uh, and how Mia Farrow had treated all of them. It's actually 
there is so much room for doubt that, and it's such an uncomfortable thing to say, I feel weird even saying it now, but people are terrified to defend him of that. And you could completely write him off for the Sunni thing if you want. That's not as a daughter. He's not the adopted father. She was over 18. None of that makes it super cool, but it's different. But I, I, this is a totally different conversation than defending this movie. But I do think people very quickly make Woody Allen jokes and don't understand the allegations that they're accusing him of and how up in the air that they are. I mean, because... it is really interesting, I think, if you look at that stuff. I because mean, I've read all this stuff too, Dan, right? And um, why is it the case that some of the children you absolutely have to believe and you can't question what they say, but other of the children you're absolutely supposed to think they're lying? I'm I can not really answer sure that. Why that is, you know, like I well, don't for, really for, know for, why. For people who know who are kind of curious, because I I really care about this because he's a filmmaker who I deeply love, and that's not why I want to defend him. You know, I there are other people, say like a Louis C.K., who I also held in the highest esteem as an artist. Who once I heard what he did and heard how we felt about it after and how we talked, I was pretty able to walk away and go, I don't like yeah. that person, and I think he did all those things. And I'm I'm very rarely somebody who would defend somebody I'm usually always wrong but this one I didn't realize how much there was evidence that he didn't do this so for example uh, Dylan Farrow is a world-renowned uh, journalist who absolutely believes he does this it says it all the time he he was I think he was Ronan around... you mean Ronan, Ronan Farrow Ronan, Ronan Farrow yeah correct sorry Ro- yeah, Ronan Farrow okay. whose, whose name was Satchel at the time he was like I think around nine or ten at the time uh, the older sibling uh, Moses Farrow was around 13 uh, he was uh, adopted with Sun Yi. He's now a family psychologist, and he has absolutely said it was a wildly abusive home. Woody Allen was the only safe haven that they had, and she absolutely created this uh, story to punish Woody Allen, which is basically what everyone who knows about the case believes it to be. It was and I'm investigated this- to death at the time, like very death. seriously investigated to death, and it, nothing came of it. If you want to believe he didn't do this, I'm just saying, I'll even go as far as saying maybe he did, but. I would almost bet my life that he didn't. It, the accusation is at the height of the divorce, Woody Allen went to a home filled with all of the family and family guests, took Dylan Farrow upstairs to an attic, and molested her there. Now, you would have to believe that to go, that's what the story is. I'm not exaggerating or anything. That is what the story is that he's being accused of. And you have to twist yourself. And yeah, the only person who is getting sympathy for this is a seven-year-old who has a highly manipulative mother. I've seen parents who have tried to turn their kids around their parents, and maybe I'm biased against that way, but I certainly know it's possible. Panic and stuff like that. I mean, it's kind of reminiscent of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, so so watching this movie, uh, to get us back on track, I guess, for me, I was just sort of like... (laughs) We'll see if Ricky edits all this stuff out or not. Look, I just honestly am so happy if I could try to bravely say what I honestly think about out loud and I haven't been able to like let myself enjoy Woody Allen for so long and I watched this movie with my wife and she was laughing all the way through and I weirdly watched this movie like seven or eight times because it was just one I I I really enjoyed and I still really enjoy and I'm just like want to go back to just feeling like man this guy's fucking peerless this guy was a giant. This guy, what he did with the amount of time he did and the amount of great movies he made and the amount of invention and playfulness and genre and the, the roles he's created and how original and, 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 and how much work he created, I, I just kind of fucking hate that his, his legacy is of a child molester and, and maybe he brought that upon himself because he, he made it plausible enough with the Sunni stuff that's completely valid. But 
I was teaching for a time and there were so much of these films I wanted to share with my students because they're just great. They're just worthy of being watched and studied and discussed and cared about. And a lot of them really hold up. I'm curious how you felt this held up, but there's a part of me that just wants to like kind of be a fan and, and support other people to actually watch his work and shit. So that's why I chose Alice. I'm glad that you chose this movie because it was a Woody Allen movie that I hadn't seen from a per- from a period of his career where I felt like I had watched most of the movies. Like in the last ten, 20 years or so, there's definitely blind spots where I've been like, I'm just not going to bother with this. <laughs> because I think after even some of the more recent ones that people have praised, I've watched them and like, I, I genuinely hate this movie. And so I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of steer clear of, of, of the new movies almost as much as possible. But I this is from that period of time where like I said before it's ground it's it's whimsy grounded in a reality that he was very good at it's like Hannah and her sisters meets Jade Scorpion or something you know like yeah. and that that or really Midnight in Paris which is probably a better comparison Midnight in Paris yes. sort of has that magical realism to it but it doesn't quite have the pathos or death that this movie occasionally I think aims for and achieves well i think yeah midnight in paris was... is just like owen wilson walking around going like oh boy ernest hemingway wow <laughs> well also what midnight in paris has that and i was thinking about it in regards to this movie is that there is something like william hurt's character is an asshole but there is something believable about his performance he doesn't feel solely like a cardboard cutout one-dimensional and, and person even, or even if he say... is that when you watch midnight in paris rachel mcadams and her parents are just impossible to believe. It just feels oh, like God, a very awful. cynical, yeah. cutout, like one-note joke that just keeps going and is exhausting uh, to watch. Where William Hurt is is, is 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 watchable. You buy this asshole, whereas you don't you don't buy any of the assholes in later Woody Allen movies. I I don't even really think he's an asshole in this movie. Like I think he's they're just supposed to be a, a married couple and they've like grown apart and you find out at the very end of the movie he's been having a hundred affairs all the time which you didn't know about. But it's yeah, like but he also doesn't they support he's an asshole. He's an asshole. I don't he think he's support. an asshole. I don't think Dude, so. Dude, he doesn't. That's any, a great. Anytime she's like she she's like hey I have I feel this way and I'd like to talk about it he's like well however you feel is stupid like just take just play with the kids and go shopping dumb bitch she uh, I watch everything with subtitles now everything I don't care what it is it kind of just makes some lines of dialogue come to life you might not have appreciated before and there's a line where he he's she asks him what his IQ is and he goes well it must be pretty high I look around I'm pretty rich and she goes well, what do you think about my IQ. And he says, and the lines, you might not laugh at it, like a lot of jokes in the movie, but he says, uh, he goes, I don't know, average, maybe slightly above, which <laughs> if you really think about it, is so fucking insulting that you're, he's basically saying, I guess sometimes he has no respect for her, which is why he's not a good husband, right, but right, she also right. doesn't really respect herself. And she, she's not worthy of respect. I think when we meet the character, she really, I think as you get to know her better, she starts to regret a lot of how, who she is and how she behaves and relationships she's had and, and stuff like that. But no, I mean, I look, I just became a husband myself. He's not my role model. I mean, he's cold, <laughs> he's distant. He's uh, he doesn't see her as a person. He sees her as like a prop. She's a nice wife. He's also got that great line where it's like one of the, it's the kind of line that's off screen. Cause the camera sort of like panning around the apartment as the scene is opening and it opens with him she's been like bothering him scene after scene or not bothering him, but talking about how she wants something to do and needs more sort of substance and meaning in her life and she's been talking about writing becoming a tv writer and he goes you know um 
you know, like Tim Milligan's wife has been up his ass for like weeks now needing, needing yeah. something to do. And so he just gave her this store to start running. But it was just like all of my friend's wives are annoying as well. And this oh is how God. they're dealing with it. <laughs> I love this scene too, because he's so right. This has been going on in the movie. She wants to find something to do with herself, some kind of pursuit. And he starts telling her this story like, oh, my friend's wife was, you know, also up his ass. And so he gave her money to open a shop. And you think he's going to say, yeah. Would you like to open a shop? I'll give you some. But no, instead what he says is, so you can go work for her. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you can go bother her. <laughs> yeah, go sell yeah. sweaters or something. I don't know. You, you know about sweaters. I think he literally says that, doesn't he? Yeah, because she wanted at some point to be involved in, in fashion. Like William Hurt, to me, his performance, I think, I think Woody Allen movies are a real test of how self-sufficient an actor is yes. because yes, William Hurt's yes. fine, yes. but he, he doesn't really make that character as three-dimensional as some of the other actors who, as soon as they're on, like Joe Montaigne, you just feel that guy is a completely real person. Once he comes on screen, he just seems so natural and ordinary. And, and you could see that he has this crush on her and it's extremely endearing. And so many Woody Allen movies either have, like I remember Blue Jasmine, you look at Kate Blanchett, it doesn't get any better than that. But then who, who's Maggie Gyllenhaal married to? Who's a great actor. Um, what's his name? Uh, oh. Sarsgaard. Peter Sarsgaard, is that him? Yeah. And he sucks in that movie. He just isn't doing a damn thing. And you realize, oh, some actors really need a director to kind of... And Woody Allen famously... Yeah. I mean, I've heard he stories both ways. Actors, but right? like, doesn't direct actors, right? Doesn't direct actors as much. Yeah. He's like, did do he your not, own thing. Did he not direct them at this time either? Because... I mean, it's. I think it's very fair to say from like you know seventy seven to like almost like ninety nine. He like unequivocally got great performances uh, out of his actors almost almost all almost all the time. Yeah. Whereas you know starting in the two in the in the aughts up until now, I feel like he rarely gets a good performance out of somebody. Absolutely rarely, which leads me to believe that like he was willing to direct a little bit more back in the day, and now it's kind of like you're really on your own, no matter like I agree. no matter what. You look at Sean Penn and Sweet and Low Down, oh or God. or Kate Blanchett. I mean, occasionally they they on their own give great performances. But I was just listening to an interview with Walter Matha, uh, not Walter Matha, uh, uh, Walter Martin Landau about uh, crimes and misdemeanors, and he said Woody Allen was very collaborative. So much so that in the few scenes they had together, he kind of missed Woody Allen giving him micro-feedback about the performance. So it seems, I've heard both. It seems sometimes he almost ignores them entirely, and actors get very insecure, and sometimes he micromanages them, and I don't understand what periods of time or what the difference is, and I find it odd, but it, it does seem like it's sink or swim. Like, you're on your own, I've written you a character. You can mess with the dialogue a little bit, but try to make this good. And some people shine and some people just, man, they just seem so. And so I don't love William Hurt's performance in the movie. I think Mia Farrow is very good. But my yeah. my criticism of this movie was imagine it was Goldie Hawn. Imagine it was Meryl Streep, how elevated this movie would have been. I think it would have been like a Midnight in Paris, like charming uh, hit of a movie. I think because he was married to her, he sort of had to give her those roles. And even though she's very good in it, there's something about her that isn't quite a movie star, in my opinion, uh, as someone else who could have taken that movie and been like, holy shit, they were awesome. Well, she is just playing it very weird, right? I mean, it's she's playing it in this kind of, she seems kind of confused. And, and she is actually a lot older than William Hurt. I looked it up. She would have been 45 the year this movie came out. So I guess like 44 when it came out, when they were filming it. And it's like, 
I never quite know what level she's operating on. Like, because she, she does seem very like shy and flustered the entire movie. I mean, it's almost like she's doing the thing you see a lot in Woody Allen movies where the star of it is doing a Woody Allen impression. Like kind of she's doing that and kind of she's being Mia Farrow and like mostly she doesn't really seem unhappy. I, I never get the vibe from her that she's unhappy in her current life. She just kind of seems like to have some kind of nervous energy she doesn't know what to do with. Can we, uh, and can, you know, and this is why maybe why I didn't think William Hurt was an asshole because when he she's saying like, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that. And he's like, eh, you'll get over it. Yeah. I just kept thinking like, yeah, she's probably said this a hundred times in the last 16 years and she probably does get over it. You know, like, it just seemed to be like a natural part of her personality. I don't think that I don't ever think the past or the future exists in in Woody Allen movies. Like, <laughs> yeah, not, not, like not, not, and I, I guess I guess that could sound like a negative, you know. But he, 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 the characters are often like, you know, he's a comedian. He started as a comedian, so it's like one note that you can then build jokes and story off of, and he's just very good at that. And we look past it, but generally, there's no those characters are in that moment and their characters are their flaws and what they're doing are all driving them towards what's happening in that moment. And rarely does it feel like there is a um, like a, a past or future past the, like beyond the movie. Yeah, I mean, and this one in particular, I think, does have the feeling of obviously Woody Allen's done a lot of like short form humor writing, like New Yorker writing. And supposedly the so the back, you know, just very quickly to say the plot of this movie is Mia Farrow's married. I was just going to do that. I was thinking like 25 minutes in, maybe we should say what the plot of this movie yeah, is. Very I was quickly. Do it too, but I'm like, they're, I'm not the host. They're married. They're rich as shit. And Mia Farrow is unhappy. And she uh, starts going to this like Eastern medicine doctor called Dr. Yang, who um, prescribes her all these herbs and the herbs all have weird magical effects. And at the same time, she is falling in love, having falling in love slash having a crush on another uh, parent at the school that she takes her kids to uh, played by Joe Montaigne. Yeah, he's like supposed to be a saxophone player who isn't, you know, to their level of wealth and status. Although I would argue seems to be very, very successful and reasonably wealthy. Um, and the, the movie just kind of follows this as it unfolds. And, you know, the herbs do various things. You turn invisible, you see ghosts, you see a muse, you know, et cetera, et cetera. She goes flying at some point. Um, and there's so... a lot about Catholic Catholic guilt in the movie, which I want to talk about in a minute in regards yeah. to like what right. Woody Allen does with his movies now versus what he was either able to do with them prior because of budget, con because of lack of budget constraints or I'm not, I'm not really sure, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Keep going, Chris. Sorry. But yeah, but so I read on the Wikipedia about this movie that basically uh, it was inspired by Woody Allen going to an acupuncturist after his, some mm -hmm. other the health problem that he had. And originally it was going to be called the magical herbs of Dr. Yang. <laughs> and like something about knowing that and looking at the movie, it, it very much like you're saying, Ricky has the vibe of like a, a short New Yorker humor essay idea that he somehow turned into a feature film. Uh, Cause it's just very like, then I got the next herbs and they do this crazy thing. And I learned this about <laughs> myself, you know? And then I, yeah, then I went back and I got more herbs and they did this. It's just very simply plotted in a certain way, but yeah. it's, he's such a great filmmaker and the performances, you know, despite what we're saying are pretty good that you kind of can miss that if you're not thinking about it on that level. But like that kind of is all that's going on. You know, it's just a very simple story that Woody Allen, you know, could be like, 1500 words but it's like it's been fleshed out into this but outside of it just being fleshed out into that and uh, just to expand upon what i was just saying there's this whole element just as an example there's this whole uh theme within the film about her catholic guilt about committing uh about being in 
committing infidelity. And there's a sequence in the movie where there's a dream sequence in the movie where she goes into a confessional in the yard of her childhood home after having talked to her sister. And I was just thinking about like, I don't think you see elements like that in, in recent Woody Allen movies. I don't think you see things that are very kind of far off the beaten path of the central story as much as you used to. And I don't think you see that. We talk about this all the time when we talk about these movies. You don't see that that often in movies anymore because for budgetary reasons, you really have to drive towards the central storyline the majority of the time or things get cut or you cut yourself because you're like, oh, am I going to have the money to shoot that? Whereas as much as this movie just feels like and then this happens and then this happens, there are all these sort of tangents and off the beaten path places that it goes to that I don't think yeah. of, like Alec Baldwin's whole dream character is not particularly necessary to the plot of the movie, but it illuminates a little bit more about what Mia Farrow was missing and who she might've been prior to this. And I don't think you get that that much in his movies anymore or in movies of this style that much anymore. Dan, you could probably talk yeah. about this a little bit more as a writer and a director working right now. Well, this, by the way, this was uh, nominated for Best Screenplay, which I didn't know. But the more I watch this movie, the more I like and respect it. I think at first, it's just very, for me, I, I love this. The Dr. Gang character and performance are fucking exceptional. I think every second of that guy on screen is gold. I completely believe him. I, that was his last performance, I guess, kind of oh, sadly. Wow. And I just, I just thought he was so wonderful in the film. But the more I watch it, the more I think about it, the deeper the movie gets. Yes, there's this... Catholic uh, theme that's very rich in the movie, but it's not just the guilt about her affair. It it completely relates to the self hatred she has for living in this post Regan, mm. horribly wasteful, wealthy area and having completely abandoned um, her, her kind of youth. She wanted to be a yeah. nun and she wanted to give back and she wanted to take care of people. And now she's living the most kind of selfish, gluttonous, wasteful life and that's a form of mental illness, but it's completely normal if you live inside of it. But I, it's something I, that hit me today. I mean, it, not today is in Thursday, but today is in, in 2020. This is just like a horrible time of people who have a lot and people who have nothing and people who don't think about the people who don't have anything. And uh, the pandemic is making us think about that. So, uh, and, and it's also very psychoanalytic, you know, the, the, her going to this doctor was just a way to sort of speed up the process of what you learn in psychoanalysis, which is, okay, your parents weren't who you thought they were. You might not be who you thought you were. You're kind of responsible for some of your stuff, but you're not responsible for all your stuff. And it's a very rich performance. And even the Alec Baldwin character, I love all those kind of magical scenes. I love the Bernadette Peter mm -hmm. scenes where she plays her, uh, oh, so uh, the muse. She just crushes that one scene. She's just so powerful and beautiful on screen. And um, so every time they, they use the, herbs it wasn't just silly to me sometimes it just was just more profound than i even remembered watching the movie back uh when you see this scene with her mother who was like this failed actress who kind of turned into an alcoholic or whatever and the mother in this kind of dream conversation says to her you know i'm not who you thought i was i needed your dad i was dependent on him i was a failed actress you just saw us with stars in your eyes but we gwen had verdon too else. the mother's My played by God. gwen verdon like that's incredible so good. Yeah, that's a weird thing. Yeah, so yeah. Also, the movie seemed weirdly uh, Christmas-like. Like, you know, I was like, "Oh, this is good timing." It was like the closest thing Woody Allen made to a Christmas movie for uh, for the season. It is funny. So. I think like I have a bunch of stuff to say about everything you just brought up, Dan. But just talking about that, that was actually a note I made. Um, I feel like movies that are set in this 
rich Upper East Side New York world, which is, you know, Woody Allen's world. I don't know how long he's lived there, but like, you know, this is a movie, it's basically like about the kinds of rich people that he would run into or be friends with in this little ultra wealthy enclave that he lives in. Like I used to know, I used to go out with a girl who was in charge of managing the art collection of a guy who owned a, a small oil company who lived directly across the street from Woody Allen. So like, I, that's, I, this is what I always think of when I think about this, but it's kind of like him hating all these rich people. And it's like a very kind of nasty satire of them is another level of it. But I feel like movies that are made about this world it's always fucking Christmas. Like everyone's in fur coats. There's Christmas lights everywhere. It's you just cannot make a movie about rich people in the Upper East Side and have it not be Christmas. And so that part made total sense to me, definitely. But like so you were talking about the budget and stuff, like it was a $12 million movie. It yeah. kind of didn't make back its money. And I mean, it didn't make back its money, but like you think about, you know, Ricky was right. We talk about this all the time, stuff that you don't see in movies or certainly not movies of this level. Because because I was watching it and I'm thinking like twelve million dollars like what the hell you know and then there's a scene that t for absolutely no reason that takes place at the Big Apple Circus where they've completely filled the circus tent with extras there are mm -hmm. circus animals performing tricks the whole circus is doing trapeze acts and stuff just so that Joe Montana and Mia Farrow can look at it for literally five seconds and then go back to talking to each other I was like okay now I believe this is a twelve million dollar movie like, no this is I, my so, guess is so that, that was the season that the, the, the circus was going on for and they just let him record there. I doubt they put that all up for the movie. I would be shocked if that was the case. Well, even I bet if it they was did, going they still on. paid all the extras, right? And I'm sure they had to pay the Big Apple Circus some amount of money to have them in the movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I was surprised what the budget was as well, but it's it's a gorgeous movie. I mean, yeah. the cinematography is beautiful. The costumes, these are extremely, every apartment, every set, every, when, when she goes to uh, her best friend, they go to pick up her dog at the dog groomer. It's one of the most beautiful locations <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. And and it's not just, oh, look how beautiful it is. This is the world this character is immersed. This is her normal. Right. And it's so abnormal. And Woody Allen is like a guy who is as blue collar as it gets the way he grew up famously and so he kind of comes in he gets money he starts hanging around Mia Farrow he's in New York City it makes sense that he kind of has a perspective on this world of I don't belong here and this is pretty weird I mean there's movies like Small Time Crooks which I think is a fucking hilarious movie that came out later but where he also kind of pokes fun in it, I think in a more broad way about kind of how nouveau riche people <laughs> survive amongst the mega rich or whatever but uh I don't know. I was all for going after these rich fucking people this time. <laughs> yeah, I, no, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Me too. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. I mean, and it's yeah. very like right from the beginning, he's going after them in the sense that like there are these moments where she's in the apartment with William Hurt and the kids are playing and she's like, Marta, could you put the kids to bed, please? It's time to yeah. go to bed. Marta, put them to bed. And you just like it's disgusting. You're like, Jesus Christ, lady, put your own kids to bed. Like, love your kids. Take care of them. You don't need the maid to put your children to bed. You're not doing anything. You're just sitting on the couch and, with yeah. your husband. But doesn't that make the ending, I mean, you could really see how th that's good writing. And then yes. by the end of it, there's such a tactile connection. That, just that one shot to me where she's making these peanut butter and jelly sandwich. For, I don't know why. It gets me every time I watch this movie. I'm just like, yeah, that just feels really human and connected and healthy and, you know, for uh, this is a little personal, but I, I have a, a little brother and uh, he's like a half brother and he lives a kind of a bit more of a wealthy life. My father divorced the woman and, and he lives in a much more rich, spoiled world than I grew up with. And there's something a little 
poisonous about that that your kid is taking in all the time and i i don't know i i thought it was it's kind of rare how because most movies you're talking about that take place on the upper east side are just kind of nice new york movies yeah, they're not yeah, really yeah. commenting on the haves and have nots in in a in a serious way and yet this movie by the way if we haven't made it clear i think it's just an awesome comedy i mean it's yeah. really funny there's just so many great visual gags and verbal joke that kind of even like when the they the, a throwaway joke where she's like hey uh I want to talk to you about what best kindergarten would help your kid get into an Ivy League college. If there's such great, just Woody Allen just like tossing it away, gold, you know. Or when uh, uh, who plays Bart Simpson on The Simpsons? She has oh one yeah cameo She's yeah, and she brings in this. Uh, I don't know, some kind of like lobster trap. And she goes, I think this would be beautiful in the home and it's a steal for $9,000. <laughs> you know, and, and, you, and you completely believe it. You know that that's not even parody. You know that on some level, some rich person is getting utterly scammed for that amount of money being sold that this is a special thing just for them. And, I, you know, I, I lo- the more I watch this movie, the more I found myself uh, quoting it and finding special things and get it all connects to theme. Yeah. Uh, he was, especially at this time, he was just such a great screenwriter because yeah he's right off of crimes and misdemeanors and hannah and her sisters and yeah purple rose of cairo and then afterwards it's like bullets over broadway and movies like mighty aphrodite that are just really good movies and uh you know i obviously i think the world of them but do you think do you think he's a better writer at this time because he's willing to go deeper with these characters and go deeper into theme than he was in the in the later years like i mean i was i was relating it to budget restraints and not being able to like go on as many tangents but those tangents i mean the classic quote from scorsese about his movies is like pushing the tangent as far as you can until you know that like you have to go back to the central focus uh, uh, of the movie and like you see that all the time i think especially within this film and yet like you said it all kind it, it all works out and i don't think you see that at all in any of in any of the later movies I completely agree with your criticism, although I would argue more that the later films, they, they have very clear themes, but they're too clear. They're yes, too exactly. obvious. They're too on the nose. So if you watch something like Midnight in Paris, which I think is a great movie, the, the theme is nostalgia and is it really better or not? And that's that's really interesting. I never saw another movie really talk about that. And I thought that was a great idea and a really good movie. But if you watch something like Crimes and Misdemeanors, I still wonder what the connection is between this murder plot and Woody Allen trying to have an infidelity with Mia Farrow while <laughs> Alan Alda is trying to steal her away. And I don't exactly know why those two movies are juxtaposed on one another. I have my theories. I think about it a lot. But there was something when you write, you were asking before what I think as a screenwriter is, you kind of want the conscious and unconscious to find each other. You know, you want to be in control of it, but you also want to go, I don't know why, but these two things belong together and I don't want to have to justify it the movie i made ricky that is what i met you on Mm -hmm. is a movie that i wrote that was about my family and my grandmother dying and everybody getting together and it was also about a controversy about a professor who does something inappropriate at a college and i think you could go well what do those two things have to do with one another and i have answers for that but also i didn't know but every instinct in me was like these things are connected go with your instinct and then you try to find little pieces of thread that you're sort of manually putting throughout your piece to make sure that there's something purposeful about this. So I think you're right at this time, he was in his prime as an artist, working in both the conscious and unconscious ways. And absolutely, he was absorbing a lot through Mia Farrow. That's so obvious when you watch things like Hannah and Her Sisters in a movie like this. I mean, look, she was his life. She was his partner. She was coming from a completely different waspy Catholic world than he was. 
And uh, he clearly had criticisms of her, too, that he was sneaking into these performances that he sort of perversely made her do uh, in a way that's kind of fucked up. But also he's giving her the best roles of her career and probably made sacrifices in his own way. Like I said, I think a lot of those roles could have been played by actresses who probably would have, especially with this movie. It's hard not to believe. Yeah, just Goldie Hawn. Just imagine her in this movie. I think it would have been a, a, a better, more exciting film. Probably a hit. I really believe that. Did she really do anything after the after the breakup, after the divorce? Like the the only thing that I really remember Mia Farrow doing, which is like almost twenty years later, is the Todd Salons film that she did with Christopher Walken and uh, some other people. I can't remember the name of the movie. Miami right now. Rhapsody, I think she okay. did, which is a movie uh, that is so clearly <laughs> which is a movie. Stealing Woody Allen, <laughs> <laughs> which is a movie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, technically. That was like uh, Sarah Jessica. So no, but that also may have been a conscious choice. She clearly, in, you know, from her point of view, went through some horrible things with her family. She got much more into philanthropy. So I, who knows why? But apparently, you know, she was very grateful to Woody Allen. Even after the accusations, she was shocked she wasn't going to be allegedly in Manhattan murder mystery, uh, which he ended up doing with Diane Keaton after he had to. And that's, by the way, that's a great example of a movie because Diane Keaton is so good. And Manhattan Murder Mystery, and that movie is so funny. And if you imagine uh, Mia Farrow doing it, it just wouldn't have been as funny or as charming or as have that high energy that the two of them have together that made that movie so great. So, you know, not to shit on Mia Farrow, but... There I mean, I even Diane Keaton in this movie, I think, would have been great, right? I mean, she would Oh, totally. Been, oh, my God, it would have been great to see Diane Keaton in this movie. Um, I, I love Mia Farrow's performance in this movie. I thought she was charming and, and beautiful and... Uh, I thought she played the neurotic very, very, very well. Well, she's very much doing it at, like as a neurotic. I mean, this is what yes. I was saying when she's kind of doing like a Woody Allen thing in it. Is she is she's coming at it as a, as a, as like this character is very neurotic and confused, and it is sort of a movie like you said, Dan, where it's she goes to this herbalist, but really she's in psychotherapy. The movie is about being yeah. in therapy in a certain way, right? Because she's coming to terms with her her desires and her mistakes and, you know, learning about who she is as a person and what she really wants. Right. And yeah, that's, it, it, so it's like coming into, <clears throat> there's like a resolution on that level. And it's not an easy uh, film to perform. She's in these hypnotic states where she has to drastically change her personality from one moment to the next. You talked about, I think earlier, uh, Ricky or Chris, you were talking about that one, two shot of her and Joe Montagna where the drugs kick in and suddenly oh, she's yeah. hitting on him very aggressively. And it's yeah. a very long, really good take in her performance and she's funny there's the climactic scene in the movie where the party all takes this love potion and fall in love with her oh yeah and great. every you know I, I learned john hawks was an actor i worked with who always told me don't play the ending just just be committed to the moment even if you know where your character where the scene is going and every time i watch it her performance is so casual that you just don't expect all these men are going to start she's really good in the movie she's not trying to be funny but at, at times she is extremely funny throughout the film yeah, the way uh, she plays and, that scene is great because she just seems very like annoyed that everyone is hitting on her she's like oh come yeah. on stop it you know and people are like you're the most beautiful woman i've ever seen and she goes oh thank Thank you. Bob Balaban like runs after the first time Bob Balaban tells her oh, he then so shows good. up and he's like yelling at her. He's like, listen, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I, that scene is so funny. I was sort of sad to not watch it with an audience, but I was happy to watch it with just one other person because it reminds you how laugh out loud funny the movie is at times. And it's just such a pleasure to watch. And it's, yeah, it is such a weird, yeah, at times a meandering movie. You could lose that Alec Baldwin subplot, but I don't know. I I guess thinking about, okay, why is that in this movie? 
you kind of think, oh, this woman was clearly at a crossroads in her life and she took the safe way out with this rich guy mm-hmm. who really charismatically said, I want to marry you. And she kind of took this road her mother took was like, I'm just going to be reliant on this man. And even if the spark isn't there, I'll be, I'll be looked after and I'll have money and I don't have to worry. And, and she's looking back and going, was that a, a bad decision to make? I mean, I think that's really interesting. No, I love, yeah. I love the Alec Baldwin stuff. I, I, I mean, I love those tangents. And I, I think the thing is when it comes to human movies or, you know, small comedies of manners these days, I just don't, I don't think, and I could be wrong. And this is why I brought it up to you, Dan. I, I it just doesn't feel like, writers writers writer directors or writers are really allowed any kind of tan, tan, tangents like that any anymore i don't know yeah. if it's like from a financial standpoint or if it's from a producer standpoint it's like you know what is the focus what is the point of this movie everything feels very directed at like a central idea and theme and no one is really allowed to kind of be exploratory around that well woody allen i just read his uh, autobiography because obviously i like him and it just came out and I, I listened to it on book on tape and and I didn't know this, but you know, he said people assume he's much richer than he is. He practically made no money on any of the movies he made in exchange for having complete creative control of everything. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the shit was awesome and a hit, and he didn't necessarily, you know, benefit from those from those successes. But he was able to make a couple failures in a row and have the same deal. And so he fought for complete creative control. He also very famously does reshooting, recasting, and post-production is much more aggressive for him than other filmmakers. And he's completely reshot films, recast certain roles if they didn't work out, added additional scenes and things. So, Still? you know, it, it's pretty amazing. Oh, yeah, I don't think he is capable of the ch- changing his process. So I think he still continues to do that. Although I wonder if he's on a tighter leash now because, yeah, there's just not as much money to be made from films and to work as comfortably as he does doesn't seem possible by today's standards. But Woody Allen has a very unique position in film, and he makes his films as cheaply as he can. He gets major stars to work for no money, and he has total creative control. And some of his movies, but he didn't make a lot of money when Midnight in Paris was as successful as it was. I think that was his most successful film to date, and that's kind of the deal he made. You almost got a sense he was writing the autobiography to make some change and also to get his story out there about the Mia Farrow stuff, which those chapters, whether you believe him or not, to me, rang of complete authenticity and were really dramatically compelling to, they were two different parts in the autobiography, one about what happened at the time. And then one about 20 years later when me too happened or 30 years later, almost. And suddenly all these actors are kind of like turning on him and shitting on him. And he's reading New York times articles where his name is being lumped in with Harvey Weinstein all in one kind of lump and he just can't believe it and there's even some things he says in there he said he goes i so desperately wanted everyone to investigate this he said there's a great line in the book where he says i feel like i'm holding a straight flush in my hands and i want someone to call me like i got nothing to hide like it's just what i would say if i was somebody who was guilty you know what I mean? Like, though you always watch people who defend themselves after these Me Too moments and you go, that's not how I would act if I didn't do it. I would just go, guys, I know this looks bad, but I'm telling you, this did not fucking happen. Like, I, I, I would just be that way. And 
So anyway, there's other things about him that ring of truth. But he seemed to have total creative control and for the most part of his career, I think, did a lot of great stuff with it. I mean, well, man. He's, he still has creative control, but like the budget for this was $12 million, as we said. And so $12 million in 1990 would probably be about like, what, 20 to $25 million yeah, something now? Like yeah, maybe more. And yeah. what are the budget? And the budgets of his movies now are definitely not 20 to $25 million per movie, I don't think. Like I don't. I mean, I would I, guess they're still around twelve million. You know, like which goes they a have lot. Not been which, adjusted for inflation. You know, like, which, which when you do a just, period film, you know, they they get much more expensive because I did that one Jennifer Aniston Life of Crime movie I did was period and it was nineteen seventy eight and I can't tell you how much of the budget went to making everything period. I mean, so a movie like Sweet and Lowdown probably has a higher budget than this, even though it might seem smaller because you can't use. The spectacle of New York City, you have to build every single set and location and prop and car and costume. And so period tends to cost a lot, too. So I bet that's very dependent from budget to budget for his work. It sucked. It really I didn't realize how much it killed me on that movie. And I lost a lot of shooting days and budget. And I was like, oh, man, I wish I could just go outside and shoot. It was a bummer. So the budget on, um, sorry, the budget on uh, Wonder Wheel, his last period movie or like his at least widely released period movie was 25 and the budget wow. on like a, a rational man was 11 and the budget on um, midnight in paris was 17 so he's okay. he gets he gets what he needs it looks like at least well wonder wheel 2 you have to position as like so it obviously came out at like the absolute worst moment for woody allen's career but when they were making it it was like Amazon had signed him to this big multi-picture deal. Was this this was either the first or second one in the deal? I'm sure they were like anxious to be supporting him at this moment. You know, it's like they're doing all sorts of things with notable filmmakers, and I think they were very interested in having you know a marquee Woody Allen movie. So I'm not surprised to hear that's like an abnormally high budget that they gave him. Yeah, I have some conspiracy theories about that too, because apparently there was a very juicy lawsuit that took place after they kind of wanted to break this deal with him because Me Too really just took made Woody Allen working in the United States impossible. But if you notice on, on Amazon here, and especially I'm in Germany now, and you can see it overseas, there's loads of Woody Allen content that Netflix, for mm -hmm. example, doesn't have, I think, any hardly any Woody Allen films because people just don't want to put stuff like that out there and just have that conversation or debate or lose customers or whatever. Um, and I have a feeling whatever deal he made with them was were also for his films to stay in, uh, yeah, streaming, stay in the world, stay in the consciousness. Yeah, I have to say, I, th this, this, this may not be here nor there, but like if you can't handle that a streaming service has put up um an alleged like allegedly a pervert a pervert's uh, like an alleged pervert's work you shouldn't watch fucking anything because the majority of stuff that is made has an alleged pervert somewhere along the lines like the, <laughs> it's just impossible in a in a in a in a rapidly capitalist industry like movie making that you're not going to have a few a, a bad apple or two every now and then or 60 to 70% of the time somewhere along these the lines hundreds of people make movies sometimes you know like Oftentimes you're watching a movie and the money has come from the Saudi royal family or like some Persian family that probably has slaves from from another country. Like you, it, it costs a lot of money. Or like money these to like make, Chinese to make companies movies. that are like, yes, you wouldn't yeah. really want to know where the money is from, you know. Marvel Let's probably say, Marvel probably has products in their movies that are built from <laughs> like Weiger slaves in China, right? Yeah. Like it just it, that's just the way that it is. <laughs> 
let's say for the sake of argument, okay, whether you believe me or not, on my point of view, let's say for the sake of argument, he did nothing like this with Dylan Farrow, and he did the Sunni thing, but nothing like this. But and by the way, when I taught, whenever I would bring up his name, the entire class of so this young generation all think, as soon as you say Woody Allen, they say child molester. That's what they think, and that's, that's cemented in their minds. If it's true he didn't do anything, which I'm telling you, I, I almost think it's almost 99, 100% likelihood, that's a really tough raw deal. And yeah. I think he is weirdly, uniquely qualified because he doesn't seem to give a shit what people think. He's like, he's like a hermit. He's like a weird guy. He doesn't really care about critics and anything else. I mean, I'm sure he does, but he's, he's created this reality where he's just him and his wife and all this kind of stuff. That is tragic. It really does make me angry. It feels unjust. Uh, whatever you think about Soon Yi, they're still married. It seems like a really interesting, healthy marriage, at least from their point of view. Whatever, fine. It's it's not for us, but somehow they made it work or whatever. Hey, whatever it, works. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it bums me out. It, it does, and and I I can't seem to shake it. There's something unjust about it. But the level of nuance, uh, Ricky, that you're advocating for uh, for social media to be totally cool with Woody Allen putting his films and, and getting financed by them, that world doesn't exist anymore. So yeah, if Mia Farrow really wanted to take him down, this was the definitely the right way and the right time to do it because you don't need to be convicted. You just need to be convicted in the public court. And, and uh, I think for generations, people will not necessarily do a lot of homework on this and believe us about him. And again, maybe it's possible, but that sucks for that dude. And there's something about watching Alice again that made me want to just because now I, I did a little bit of YouTube research just to find little trivia to chat with you guys about and stuff. And then YouTube suggests all these other Woody Allen interviews and behind the scenes things. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And I'm just like, man, I kind of want to revisit all this stuff from high school again because the guy formed me. And it, it hurts when you read his autobiography that his family was taken away from him. He clearly loved Satchel, who was now Ronan and, 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 and his daughter and it, it, I believe it. It just has this ring of authenticity when I listen to it. It's how I would be if I was fucked over that bad. Well, <laughs> you know, it just, it's sad. Can I ask about, this is changing topic a little bit, but talking about family and like, sexual mores <laughs> and stuff. Like, um, this movie, I thought, has a, a fascinating approach to infidelity, to like cheating on your spouse, in that it makes it seem like, Mia Farrow is basically insanely uptight and the, for not wanting to cheat on her spouse. And Joe Montaigne <laughs> is kind of very patiently shepherding her through committing adultery. And anybody who knows her, they just, they have to have, they're like, oh, she's like a Catholic. Like, that's the reason she won't fuck around on her husband. Like, that's the only possible reason someone could not fuck around on her husband. And it did take me back to a, a different time in, in America and in society when I, 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 and I'm, I'm just was struggling to think of why the movie has this, this attitude towards infidelity, which a lot of Woody Allen movies have and other things. But it's like, I, I, all I could think was there, there used to be this, there used to be this idea that like people wouldn't get divorced as much, or it was harder to get divorced, and therefore having affairs was more normal and more like it was almost inhuman to think that you would not have an affair over the course of your marriage. And I, can, I feel like that attitude has like really swung around. Like now people's attitudes is like the second you're attracted to someone else, you should walk out on your family and be true to yourself and have sex with them. But you like absolutely cannot lie to your spouse and or you should just have some kind of like arrangement where you have an open marriage. Um, so I don't know if that struck either of you guys, but like as a married person, I was like, this is just so it seems like a dispatch from an alien planet to me. The way all these people treat marriage and sex, it was very odd. It, 
it struck me that a culture of, let's say, trophy wives, and you marry someone because you think they look the part or, or they'll be impressive to your community or country club or family or whatever, and then you grow bored of that person because you didn't really fall in love by respecting them and how important that is. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, to take your thoughts seriously, you could see how those people ironically lose interest in their spouse because it was a more of a physical thing or uh, keeping up with the Joneses or for appearances. And they didn't kind of hold out for someone that they really emotionally or intellectually connected with and were stimulated by. And so you see the women that William Hurt has affairs with, and they're these really kind of fast talking business women. They're the opposite of what Mia Farrow yeah. was in that movie. And it makes kind of some sense that at least that's why he would want that. The movie, unlike his later movies, and I know that I keep doing this, but uh, it drops you into this world without overly explaining what the problems with the world are, which I like. I, I think a later movie or another movie would kind of be, would very much try to overly channel exactly what the morals of these people are and, and, and how, how, how negatively it views its wealth, where this movie feels fairly lived in. And it's not until like, Blythe Danner's appearance and conversation with Mia Farrow that we really get the clair the moral clarity of the movie, but for the most part, you're dropped into this to this world. So it's it does seem kind of alien because I think we're more used to movies telling you exactly what are the um, what are the things that you're supposed to be critically minding in, in the world that you're dropped right, into. Right. Does that make sense? So you're just saying like, I wasn't yeah, like intellectually sophisticated enough to understand. Yeah. I'm saying you're a fucking moron, Chris, and you should pay the fuck attention when you watch movie. No. <laughs> um, the Blythe, the Blythe Danner character is sort of, first of all, she's another actress who comes in and completely fleshes out her part and you completely like her and believe her. And, and she seems like a really wholesome personality and i i like that she's the one person who kind of called mia farrow out on her shit and mia farrow cut her alice cut her out of her life and then you look back and you're like okay you have these friends but they're all these snakes who tell you one thing and line behind your back and your husband patronizes you and cheats on you behind your back and maybe in life we kind of do discard the people who give it to us straight <laughs> you know and kind of keep the people who create a lovely illusion around us in real life too and i think a lot of the infidelity stuff in the movie too is to just create this cacophony of gossip right, like yeah. i love that at the end of the movie when they're talking about her and that she left and went to calcutta and worked with mother Teresa. they just then go on to who got liposuction and got her <laughs> face done because they're such shallow people and 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 they they don't even understand the depth of her story and her decision and they're not interested in yeah, that she's either. not like a person that they are friends with she's like a topic of conversation you know I also love when she comes back from Calcutta and her her wardrobe has completely changed. She's giant and she looks sweaters. Just she's wearing giant sweaters. Fucking, fucking adorable in those giant sweaters and jeans that she's wearing. She's like now casual and cool and like an NGO world yeah, traveler. Her kids like, on swings and laughing her head off and 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 then you're hearing the gossip, the like Greek chorus being like, oh, she spends all her time with her kids now. <laughs> you know, and it looks really nice because um. Because I'm like essentially needy and I'm the one who recommended this movie. So I'm kind of curious, what's your wrap up review of the movie? Like, did you dig it? Did you super dig it? Was it just okay? Like, how did, I don't think either of you hated it from what <laughs> I could tell. Oh, I, 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 I loved it. It's not one of my favorite Woody Allen movies, but I, I love almost any movie of his from this period of time. Yeah, um, me too. Just like an incredible fucking run um of of movies just at the top of his game and 
I'll say I, I we it's another thing that we talk about in this podcast a lot. Like he's not a director that transferred well to digital. Uh, the way that he shoots his movies, um, which can be sometimes kind of flat or sometimes kind of yeah. kind of basic, really lends itself well to the sort of naturalism of of, of thirty five millimeter and how well sort of and how well kind of documentary realism can look like like that whereas you know you watch some of the movies now and they just feel flat and lazy visually uh where even in moments of this movie where it's just a static shot of two people against a wall it happens to look just a little more a little better and have a little more craft than i think a lot of the, the 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 later films feel yeah i I, I loved it. I loved watching the sort of later whimsy match up against the Hannah and her sister's uh, realism. Yeah. I mean, I will say I, cool. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't like absolutely crazy about it. It did feel like I had the feeling watching it of like, you know, Woody Allen makes a movie every year. Like at this point, he's very, very famous. You know, you get the feeling that no one but Woody Allen could have possibly gotten this movie made because of the way it's very like, diffuse and it you know as much as it has a sort of a spine a spine of a plot and like a a point it also like kind of doesn't you know it's kind of just like a bunch of people in new york you know being neurotic to each other which i actually love movies like that in general like metropolitan is one of my favorite movies but um i was like you know you just Mm. kind of get if you're me uh you kind of think about like how you know, unjust it is in a certain way that like some people get to make movies like this and other people don't get to make movies like this. And like, how in the world did this movie get made? And like, you just kind of, and the movie does feel occasionally like it's grasping for something else to happen, you know? Like, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was amusing. I had a really good time watching it. But at the same time, I was kind of like, eh, you know, it's fine. It's fine. It was fine. It was one also I had never seen before. Although I was very familiar with the, box art which i think i had seen in blockbuster my entire childhood but i had just never (laughs) rented it you know i don't know why it's almost kind of vaguely menacing the way the box is it's all black (laughs) mia farrow's head wearing a black hat and it just says alice in all block letters yeah i always thought before i knew who woody allen was i remember thinking this was a horror movie it looks like a horror movie it does in in video stores (laughs) yeah i i will say one thing there's i think there's a reason why this isn't one of his more famous movies and i think it's because it's it it is actually more dense than a lot of his other films there was a sense of while i was watching this that it felt like the longest of his movies that i had seen in a very long time it felt like one of his longer movies i don't know if that's necessarily the case but the pacing of it does feel off and at a certain when it it ended i was like an hour and 40 minutes i really felt like i was about 220 into this movie at this point um but i think that's because it's dense and there's a he he piles on a lot of ideas he piles a lot of ideas onto this character yeah you feel like you've read a book or something i mean i i I feel the same way all right lightning round Uh, round. okay so the first question is what is your favorite part of the movie oh man i don't know no i I, uh, it's tough there's so many moments that i really like i i just want to choose a dr yang moment oh no i'll give you one that i didn't mention before it's actually a william hurt performance when he's caught having the affair and she just magically appears and becomes uninvisible in his office his performance of just being so fucking yes. shocked and surprised, he's literally shaking because it's inexplicable to him, and he, he's so flatly caught. It's probably not my favorite moment in the movie, but it's one that Shelby last night is like, 
oh yeah, that would be so weird if it really happened to you. And as much as I don't think he's great in this movie, that moment is really funny and committed to me. And I, I, I love and it. And he, no, he just I love keeps that saying, too, like, how'd you he, get in the building? How'd you get in the building? Yeah, <laughs> it's he, doesn't, he doesn't play that he's been caught cheating. He plays that, like, someone invisible just appeared exactly. <laughs> from being invisible exactly. in front of him. It's a really yeah. funny It's a really funny choice. Um, the other question is, um, what's the most 90s part of this movie for you? The, the the wardrobe. My my family, a business. Uh, not, not that I was a part of it, but uh, growing up was jewelry, and sort of in the eighties and nineties, it was like very gaudy, big, showy stuff. That's what the eighties and nineties were kind of about. And then they transitioned into like uh, what are called freshwater pearls, which are cheaper, more affordable fashion. But when you watch the the rings and the necklaces and the earrings and the hats and the jackets and the clothes, it it's such a specific it wouldn't have made sense 20 years earlier or 20 years later but it really it's actually wonderful costume work i think in, in the entire movie uh, and and I, I love that stuff and it's just so ridiculous looking uh, by today's standards and the last question is it's been 30 years since this movie was made what do you think this movie's grown out of Oh, let's see. I don't. I don't know. I, I guess I was trying to look at it through that lens too, and I found that it kind of held up uh, a little bit. I don't know. I'm curious if give me a minute, buy no, me some I time. Mean, Did you guys feel like there was something about it that I felt agree. dated to you? I mean, I, I, with what you're saying, Dan, like a lot of times, this is the section where we talk about something, you know, racist or sexist in the movie. I mean, there's not a lot of that in this movie that's pretty obvious. You know, the stuff we've grown out of. I mean. I, I think it's this is kind of a cop out because we say it a lot, but it, it is just the way that this is like a big budget comedy for adults that's like a little bit complicated and a little bit, mm -hmm. um, like I said, more diffuse than, than in other movies like that you would see now, certainly. Right. Like uh, it's just we just they just, you know. I've said this on this show before and I feel like such an ass, but it's like they don't make them like this anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like you just cannot make a movie like this these days. Um, uh, yeah. I, I feel like we are missing the obvious though, which is Dr. Yang. I mean, it is Dr. Like, Yang. No, I just it is like Dr. Yang, Dr. Yang yes. would not like as much as I think it's a loving portrayal of Dr. Yang and he's a great character. Oh, I don't think you I could know. submit a script that has a, an, a Chinese herbalist also running an opium oh, den and not have and, someone and be like, like oh, maybe we cut this. And when we show up at his den, you know, the music is going like, dung, 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 dung. And you're yes. like, oh, <laughs> oh, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. I know. I'm so torn about that because there was also something, I think, even around this, more in the later 90s, I remember Spike Lee pointing out where he called it the magical Negro. Uh, it was sort of like Legend of Bagger Vance kind of times. <laughs> you know what I mean? definitely the where... magical Asian person. Yes, exactly. I know, but the character uh, is so strong and sort of intellectual and is clearly perceptive of her issues and... I, he almost, to me, transcends that, but I could definitely see an argument for uh, the the opposite. I, so I, I don't know. Oh, by the way, this is the last thing I wanted to say, because you, uh, you had gone to Wikipedia and said that Woody Allen uh, came up with this idea because he had heard there was kind of a famous uh, herbalist who was from Chinatown that all these rich people were using uh, in the autobiography. He talks about it, and it's so funny because apparently he had a sty in his eye, and he couldn't get a doctor to figure it out, and somebody told him to go to Chinatown. There was this famous guy. And then uh, I guess the, the guy prescribed to him, you need to put a cat's whisk or whisker into your tear duct. 
and this will cure this. And, and then Woody Allen did it. And of course, it just got so much worse. And then he had to get another specialist <laughs> to fix it. But I love the idea of Woody Allen doing this. And a cat's whisker is just a great joke. And it, it just sounds funny. And uh, everything about that uh, makes me laugh. Um, all right. Well, thanks for having me on to chat about this movie. You guys are the best. I, I love this show that you guys do. And it, it seems so because I think we're all around the same age. And I, I, I found that like whether it's because of COVID or because of the age I am, I am going back to this really specific time in my life to when I first discovered movies and fell in love with them because I find it so comforting and there's this mixture of sort of the nostalgia of doing that and then reconciling it with 2020 eyes. And mm. I don't know if that's kind of why you guys ended up doing this, but it really sort of synced up with exactly what I've been looking back at during this COVID watching more movies and even less TV actually time just for comfort. And when I think about the movies my parents or grandparents recommended, they all recommended those movies from their yeah, burgeoning true. childhoods and things like that. And it's, I'm kind of feel like I'm returning home to these like uh, early nineties movies that are just like kind of in my bones, you know? Yeah. And I just think it's very cool. And I'm glad you asked me to come on and I'm going to keep <laughs> on listening. Dan, thank you so much. And thank you for recommending this. I'm really glad I watched this. Yeah, me too. Oh, yeah. Cool.